0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the privilege of introducing a lecture today by Dr. Peter F. Jensen. He is a retired anglican archbishop the archbishop of sydney and the metropolitan of the province of new south wales in the anglican church of australia Uh, he's a person who served the lord very ably in many ways he's a scholar uh, by background a doctor of philosophy degree from the university of oxford he's a scholar of the reformation of puritanism a marvelous preacher and teacher of god's word But he's also had over the years a real desire to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in a secular setting. And what we're going to listen to today is the first in a six-part series of lectures, which were called the Boyer Lectures, offered in 2005 on the Australian Broadcasting Company. And so there's several references in this lecture to the Australian context into which Dr. Peter Jensen was speaking at the time, and yet I think you'll find the immediate relevance to those of us who live in other parts of the Western world, so to say, uh, because we face many of the same issues on who is Jesus Christ for a culture such as ours, and how do we even talk about Jesus Christ in a world that has forgotten some of its basic fundamental moorings. Well, you're going to listen to this wonderful lecture and enjoy hearing Peter Jensen. But let's listen now to Dr. Peter Jensen, The Future of Jesus, the 2005 Boyer Lectures, the Australian Broadcasting Company.
1: I've spent most of my life talking to Australians about Jesus. He is my great enthusiasm. But it's a job that's getting harder. I'm wondering how the future of Jesus and the future of our country will intersect. Let me illustrate. Four of our brightest and best university medalists, historians, lawyers, Harvard graduates, first-class honours men, have written a book called Imagining Australia, Ideas for Our Future. It's a work of bold and imaginative suggestions. Rightly, they put a discussion of Australian values in the first chapter, headed Australian National Identity. After all, it's hard to imagine the future without starting with matters of beliefs, identity, ethics, relationships, history. But they do not have much room for Jesus in their vision of our future. They see that we need values, but they favour humanist values. They seem to think that a secular state means a secular community. Perhaps they think that multiculturalism has disaffiliated Jesus. He is too divisive to be allowed to speak. I wonder, though, how much they actually know about Jesus. Perhaps they lack the requisite knowledge to bring him into the discussion. For example, they casually quote Abraham Lincoln as an authority, Lincoln saying, A house divided against itself cannot stand. No doubt he did say this. But he knew quite well, as did all his hearers, that he was quoting Jesus. He was citing a supreme cultural authority. He didn't have to offer a footnote to that one. But we have now reached a stage where four highly educated and intelligent Australians apparently fail to recognise a standard quote from the Bible. It explains, I suppose, the absence of Jesus from their treatment of values. Mind you, it's a surface absence, because whether they know it or not, Jesus is basic to our history and so our culture, thus, when they are trying to upgrade traditional Australian characteristics, such as a fair go, Jesus pops up anonymously. In a truly striking sentence, they say, The modern fair go demands that we should do unto others as we would have done unto ourselves. It is striking, isn't it? Once again, there is the utterly unconscious quoting of Jesus, as a source of modern, secular values. And there is the lovely irony that the modern fair go is described in the antique English of do unto others, straight out of the King James Version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is there, but he's been rendered invisible. He's an anonymous Jesus. He makes his contribution without acknowledgement. And that's one of the chief problems of the job I'm doing. Frankly, Jesus is slipping out of memory and imagination. We cannot really blame the authors of the book. As the historian Dr. Stuart Piggin has observed, Australia's social commentators and historians are tone-deaf to religion. He documents the way in which the cliché that this is a country without a religious past is religiously repeated. Professor Brian Dickey of Flinders University is just as trenchant. The secular left liberal accounts of our history, which became so dominant from 1950 to 1980, did not want to treat with Christianity, except to scorn it. In these circumstances, Jesus' kingdom has waned, you could say. His future is very unsure. We have other gurus now. People seem to know so little about Jesus that they are unwilling or unable to refer to him explicitly in a discussion of values. We cannot bring him to the table to tell us what he thinks. But, and here's a paradox indeed, another reason for his invisibility is that he's very well known. He's like the life of the party. Everybody knows Jesus. His kingdom continues to wax, you could say. He's so well-known, we do not even have to think or talk about him. Which means, I submit, that we approach him via cultural clichés, which hide the real Jesus from view. We do not know him all that well. Parts of his basic teaching would actually surprise us. Which leads me to another problem. It's the churches who talk mainly about Jesus... And who wants to hear what they have to say? This is a significant problem for me in giving the boyer lectures. I am, after all, a denominational official. I carry the burden of the uncertain reputation of the churches. It's difficult to get beyond the boredom, indifference or antagonism that many people feel towards organised religion. Perhaps it would be better for me to stick to something safe, like botany or golf, or even values or social justice. Why Jesus? For three main reasons. First, because it's simply a fact that he is one of the two or three most influential people who have ever lived. The name of Jesus, said the American sage Ralph Waldo Emerson, is not so much written as ploughed into the history of the world. Most people who have thought deeply about the subject will recognize the justice of this assessment. Or take these words, attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires, But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and to this hour millions of people would die for him. Second, his life and teaching have been so fundamentally important to our own culture. I would say that we are even secular in a Christian sort of way. We can quote the Sermon on the Mount as part of modern humanistic ethics, without knowing it. You will always have trouble in understanding our literature, our history, our identity, if you know little about Jesus. You will also have trouble understanding the modern world, a world in which the words of Jesus are taken with utmost seriousness and acted upon by millions of people, whether in the newly developing China or in the USA. His words have that sort of contemporary significance. Third, because I think that as well-known as he is, he is unknown. You could say that his sheer greatness has obscured the facts about him. At least before he slips from view, we ought to ask whether he has some vital and permanent truths to share with us. I don't really want to talk about the institutional church or even religion. Such things, frankly, are of marginal interest to me. I quite like going to church, but I find it hard to like the institutions, and I don't really think of myself as a religious person. What I really want to do, and I think that we need to do it as a nation while we still have the chance, is to talk about Jesus, and to let Jesus talk back to us. I want to provoke a national debate with the Jesus of the Gospels. I know that we have no established church or religion, that's good, that's good law. We're fortunate not to have been afflicted with a state church. I know that we have embraced multiculturalism, and I myself am delighted by the new and different Australia that's emerging as a result of our immigration policies. But some seem to think that it means that we have no basis for our civilization, apart from a few scaled-down general values like a fair go and mateship, the myth of Anzac and the myth of Eureka. At a time when other cultures seem menacingly assured and powerful, we seem to have become very modest about our own past, very nervous about identifying who we are, very shy about receiving inspiration from some of the greatest words ever spoken. We keep thinking that our inherent tolerance and decency will preserve us. We are, after all, a liberal society, Interested in the rights of the individual and giving all a fair go? I would suggest that these national traits are far more tenuous in us than we like to think. Put to the test, we may well fail them. When we're no longer prosperous, when we have to struggle for existence, if terrorism becomes a part of life, what would make us stick to these values? Where would we look for inspiration I hardly think that the story of the Eureka Stockade is going to inspire even makeshift tolerance and a fair go for all. If I wonder aloud about the future of Jesus, it's not because Christianity itself is dying. In many parts of the world, faith in Jesus is growing at an astonishing rate. But in places like Australia, we must now ask, has Jesus Christ got a future? Is he going to continue to influence us at all? Are we going to appeal to him for guidance? Is he going to impact lives for good? Many of our forebears looked at Jesus as their inspiration when they created Australia. He did not seem to be a foreigner then. Can Jesus be brought into the national conversation about the future? So what am I hoping to do? My practical aim is to inspire a widespread adult reading of the New Testament Gospels. I want you to understand some of the issues at stake as we read these documents. I want you to see what a surprising man Jesus is. I want to trace something of his impact on the world. I want to see whether there is a trajectory which suggests that more is yet to come. I want to see whether he can speak with something like his old power to central cultural issues like personal freedom, human relationships and the future of our country. I was discussing this project with a sympathetic agnostic and she said this, how can Jesus enrich the lives of unbelievers? I will try to attend to that question. I'm trying to stand where you may be, willing to think as an adult about Jesus Christ, but no surer than that. I certainly don't think that I own Jesus in some way. He belongs to us all, even to unbelievers. I aim to be like a committed but sympathetic art critic, someone who stands with you before a portrait, someone who helps you to see for yourself what your own eyes are observing. The critic cannot take your place. Indeed, you will have your own perspective, your own angle of vision, your own presuppositions nor do I have the skill or the time to tell you everything that may be told. As we share this experience, I hope that you will tell me what you see, for this is not a one-way event, nor can I predict the results. I only know that it is vital, never more so than now. The quest for the truth about Jesus and his future has ramifications social, political cultural, personal. For your part, you may be repelled, attracted, indifferent. In the end, you may share the perspective of that famous beetle, John Lennon, who famously said, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, Rock and roll or Christianity? Alternatively, however, you may stand with the great French mathematician Pascal and say, Jesus is the centre of all, the object of all. Whoever knows not him knows nothing aright, either of the world or of himself. In him is all our happiness, our virtue, our life, our light, our hope. What do we make of Jesus? Why do I say that we hardly know one of the most famous, the most universal of all men? As usual, there is a history behind these questions. Pretty well for the first time, between the 17th and the 19th centuries, many intellectuals expressed an enlightened attitude to Jesus. Miracles became as implausible as the tooth fairy. People began to study the so-called Jesus of history, rather than the Christ of the Gospels, biography, rather than theology. The church worshipped him as both God and man. Rationalism accepted his humanity while rejecting his divinity. This attitude became widespread in the community. But that created a problem. What do you do with Jesus? How do you explain his sheer historical importance while denying his divinity? The favourite answer was to turn him into a supreme moralist, to say that he taught us how human life is to be lived. He became a sort of peasant ethicist, a Galilean Socrates, a model human, a religious genius. In the reverent but irreverent words of Thomas Carlyle, the 19th century thinker and historian, he was the greatest of all heroes. The difficulty of this is with Jesus himself. He's an awkward person to categorize. Hard to know why the Jesus of the Enlightened was crucified. Of course his teaching has moral implications, but he's not like a moral tutor, not like a philosopher, not like a hero, not like a pedagogue. He's more like a man carrying a sandwich board, proclaiming the end of the world. He is a man of the future. That's why I say he is unknown. I believe that if you asked for a popular summary of the teaching of Jesus, love one another would be the reply. Perhaps to bring it right up to date, include one another and don't discriminate. Give everyone a fair go and be good mates. But if you asked Jesus to summarize his teaching, he would say, God's kingdom is near, get ready for it. So we have this problem. Jesus is universal, so he must have said really important things, but the things he did say are so particular, so time-bound, that they're not really important. Who is Jesus? Well, let's start with the basics. Let's start with what he said and how the information has reached us. The New Testament contains four Gospels written in the quite common Greek of the day, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew's Gospel has Jesus beginning his public life with this message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mark, probably the earliest of the Gospels, has him saying this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news. Both Gospels clearly regard this announcement as the burden of his message. They are the theme and substance of the Gospel. But if so, why can't they agree? Why does Matthew report his words as, Kingdom of Heaven, and Mark, Kingdom of God? To answer that, we need to take a brief detour. The detour will help us see how the information about Jesus has reached us. The puzzle in this case is a relatively easy one to resolve. Matthew is reflecting, or perhaps respecting, Jewish scruples about naming God aloud. Heaven is a euphemism for God. Mark, writing as we think to a non-Jewish audience, speaks straight out of God, the kingdom of God. All very well, but after all, which did Jesus himself say? Strictly neither. He probably spoke Aramaic rather than Greek. So, Our knowledge of Jesus is in any case mediated by the gospel writers in all sorts of ways. The perspective of the writers is one of those things which we are going to have to allow for as we assess Jesus. These writers have already translated him linguistically. Their special interests will also translate him historically. If we cannot cope with this mediated, translated Jesus we will have to find some other one, for that is the way the Gospels are. The detour is over. Let's return to the task of getting to grips with the main theme of Jesus' teaching. He made a huge point of saying, the kingdom of God is near. When he said things like, turn the other cheek, love one another, or bless to the poor in spirit, it was because the kingdom of God was near. His call for righteous behaviour had a huge hurrying urgency about it. What is this kingdom? I can tell you that it was a very tricky phrase in that time and place. It stirred powerful emotions. Hundreds of years before, the people of Israel had enjoyed a successful period of history under the reign of David, who in turn saw himself under the reign or the kingdom of God. You could say that in a way the kingdom of God had come with David. Israel was a rich and powerful empire. But that was long ago. The more recent history of Israel had been one of foreign domination and exploitation. Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and now the Romans. They were an out-of-the-way province of the Roman Empire. As usual, under such circumstances, there were different ways of reacting. Think of occupied Europe during World War II, Some collaborated, some conformed, some conspired, some revolted, but most at least hoped. I guess that in the Second World War the hope of the enslaved people lay in Allied power. Some certainly believed in a providence which would bring peace, freedom and justice, but they had no promise of this, no certainty of it. Those who heard G's different, they had a history— They had a history of promise-keeping God. God had freed them from Egypt, as he said he would. God had freed them from exile in Babylon, as he said he would. God would do it again, because he said he would. They certainly contrasted their present miserable situation as a nation under bondage to Rome and her lackeys with the glowing promises of God for a national a universal renewal to them. God had a proven track record as a promise keeper. Why were they under the heel of Rome? They did not read their situation as mere power politics. They read it in moral and spiritual terms. They understood that it had something to do with their own evil and God's justice. It gave their national life a depth which is hard for us to imagine, let alone experience. In short, They were looking for an open manifestation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom would include the putting to rights of all things, the judgment of the wicked inside and outside their own community, and the elevation of the righteous. It would usher in a new heaven and a new earth. You will have noticed already two major factors which shaped the original listeners. The first was their Bible. They belonged to a nation of the book. They lived in a world in which the teachings of the book were the staple intellectual and spiritual diet. It provided them with their framework of meaning. It's hard for us to understand this because we have lost our sense of identity through history. In our national life there is now a vacuum where most peoples have a history. It's hard to find meaning, purpose and community without it. The four authors of Imagining Australia know this. They suggest that we begin to make the story of Eureka our national myth. To me, Eureka seems rather weak on capacity to inspire and shape. How it will sustain humanistic Australian values in the hard years which may well lie ahead is impossible to imagine. You know, even appropriating the biblical history of Israel as if it were our own could be a better option. It's been done before now. Think of how the biblical story sustained the American slaves. The Bible was the history book of the nation of Jesus, but it was more than mere antiquity. It was filled with a powerful sense of promise, of time waiting to be fulfilled, of events still to come. It was promise on one side and faith on the other. In the end, it became the history book of Western culture, not just the slaves. It provided for us until very recent times the dynamic of hope in a world without clear meaning, purpose or community. We've lost it, but we have not replaced it. Unless you think that Eureka may do the trick. I spoke of two key factors shaping the original hearers. The first was the Bible. The second was their political situation. Here all their hopes collided with all their fears. The historian, Dr. Paul Barnett, tells us about the zealots who were prone to violent terrorism and insurrection. He says that, in Jesus' day, the zealot hope was expressed in the slogan, no master except God. Dr. Barnett calls one zealot, Judas the Galilean, the Osama bin Laden of his day. He led a revolt in 6 AD, when Jesus the Galilean must have been about Ten years old. No master except God is a declaration in favor of God's kingdom. Dangerous words. You could acquire a crown of thorns for announcing the imminence of the kingdom of God. Depending, of course, what you meant. Jesus, understandably, spent a lot of time explaining what he meant. He was certainly talking about the coming of the reign of God upon earth. The coming of God's reign, as opposed to the kingdoms of men, is going to be cataclysmic. Furthermore, he calls it by the dangerously ambiguous word, gospel, or good news. On the one hand, that word goes back 700 years to the prophet Isaiah, and his prediction that the Lord would come as king to his people. This he called gospel. On the other hand, in the first century world of the Roman Empire, it referred to the birth of a new heir to the throne or to the coming of the emperor, an event of good news or gospel to call Jesus' announcement good news, therefore was to suggest at least that there was going to be a competition for the throne. but here was a message political when Jesus preached, conflict was in the air from the very beginning. No wonder he was crucified. That was a decisive answer to his pretensions. And yet, there's been scholarly discussion as to whether Jesus himself was a zealot or an insurrectionist. Sober historical research cannot sustain that. My kingdom, he said to Pontius Pilate, is not of this world. And that's what he spent a lot of time explaining. The kingdom language was not a call for political or military action as such. Turn the other cheek had a very contemporary application in those days. He clearly taught that the kingdom was a gift of God to be expected, not a product of human effort to be worked towards or brought in by violence. Not that it seems to have done him much good, it was crucifixion for him. Have you noticed that the closer we get to the Jesus of history, the more interesting but the less relevant he seems. No wonder men like Carlyle and his French contemporary Ernest Renan laid great stress on his ethics and his model life. What else were they going to do with him? How else could you explain his influence? When we approach the real Jesus, when you put him back into his own times, we can understand him better, but he seems so particular that it becomes impossible to give him any universal significance. That's why his future has become problematic, because he spoke so much about the future. What sense can we make of this? He was a prophet of the kingdom, which he said was very near in time. Why on earth, then, are we still talking about him? Is it not time to shake off the cultural burden of a failed prophet, this pale Galilean, as he has been called, and to seek fresh heroes, fresh gurus, or perhaps to shake ourselves free from all who would call on us to repent and believe. Surely now we must see that he has no future precisely because he thought he had so much future. His future did not come. It is past. He no longer matters. It is Eureka for us. The wonder is that he has had any influence at all. Perhaps it is no contest between Jesus and rock and roll. Two ways open before us as we investigate these themes. In the next lecture I am going to begin by exploring the 19th century answer. Perhaps we can salvage something out of the teaching of Jesus without having to accept his apocalyptic announcements. Or perhaps, if we really understood him, we can finally rid ourselves of his kingdom and reduce him to an ancient moral sage or then again perhaps not this lecture was first broadcast on ABC Radio National and is available as an ABC book and an ABC audio book
0: you've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George